Good afternoon. It is truly a joy to be here today. Uh, such a blessing to be part of the family of God. Uh, and I am thankful for you all, thankful for the opportunity that we have today to, to worship God together and to study from His Word. If you'll open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, we're going to be spending most of our time in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 is where we'll begin. The majority of the religious world, uh, let alone society in general, uh, would disagree with something or other that is taught within this assembly. Whether it be the, the necessity of baptism, the way the Holy Spirit works today, uh, the role of free will and salvation, the organization and work of the church, or the second coming of Christ, uh, we are in the minority. Um, and it shouldn't surprise us when people disagree with us. Uh, it was no different within the first century. Uh, truth has never been determined by majority rule. And so we should not be surprised when we are in the minority. But as we go throughout the world and interact with people, this means that we need to learn how to deal with differences. We need to learn how to approach people with whom we differ and be prepared to address those differences in the most productive way. I'm going to pause for just a moment and angle this. There we go. I apologize. So today I want us to look at the book of Acts uh, and primarily look at the way that the apostles interacted with the world around them as they sought to be evangelistic. Um, and hopefully as we consider that, it will help equip us as we seek to share the gospel with those around us, as we seek to evangelize. How do we interact with people who we disagree with on matters of eternal consequence? And not only do I think that will be helpful as we consider how we interact with the religious world around us, um, but also even in our interaction with one another. We recognize that, that as we learn and as we grow, we often do not see eye to eye with everyone that we interact with. How do we deal with those differences? How do we approach uh, one another or approach others in a way that is going to be most spiritually productive? Starting here in Acts chapter 8, uh, the first principle that I want us to consider is that we need to start with common ground. The apostles and evangelists throughout Acts often took different approaches with different people. Uh, and we see, depending on who they were talking to, they started in different places. Consider Acts chapter 8 here, where Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is a very unique encounter here, because as, as Philip uh, approaches the eunuch, we see the eunuch is already reading scripture in verse 30. And so Philip in verse 31, um, we see that the eunuch invites him to join in that study. Uh, and so in verse 34, it says the eunuch answered Philip and asked him a question here. He says, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Uh, here we have an evangelistic opportunity just kind of laid in the lap of Philip 
here. He approaches him. He's already reading scripture. He invites him in. He asks him a question about this passage. And the starting point for Philip is, is quite clear. Uh, he starts at that very scripture. You know, Philip doesn't uh, stop and say, well, you know, I have this six-part evangelistic series. I'd really like to start over here instead. <laughs> uh, he starts where he's at in this very passage. And from that passage, he preaches Jesus to him. And he doesn't need to, in this circumstance, go back and establish evidence for the existence of God. He doesn't need to go back and establish uh, evidence for the authority of the scriptures. Clearly, the eunuch already believes in those things. And so he starts uh, right there in Isaiah 53. But consider that in contrast with Acts chapter 17, if you'll turn over there. Here we see Paul encounters a much different audience as he is in the city of Athens. And he is surrounded by the, the pagan idols of the Greeks here in this city. We see he doesn't begin in Isaiah 53. Uh, he doesn't begin by going to the Old Testament. Instead, he starts where these people were at. Consider in verse 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 17. It says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He again started right where they were at. He found this altar to an unknown God, and he starts with common ground. And notice he says, I see that you're very religious. I, I think some of us would be very hesitant to make a statement like that. Here we are surrounded by people who are worshiping pagan idols, and Paul commends them for something. He says, I see that you're very religious. Most of us would say, well, Paul, here you're, you're supporting idols by saying that. You need to be careful. Well, no, Paul started by finding something that he could commend. And he started with something that was good, something that they, they could share in common. They both had some uh, religious devotion here, and that was good. Paul says, let me tell you more about that unknown God that you're worshiping. And so as we approach different people from different backgrounds with different beliefs, we need to make sure that we start with some type of common ground, that we start where people are at. Throughout this lesson, I want to uh, use myself as a bad example. <laughs> uh, if I have learned anything in doing evangelistic work, it has been primarily through my mistakes. Um, and so I hope that maybe by sharing some of those with you, uh, you can learn some of the lessons an easier way than I did. Uh, back. Uh, shortly before uh, Aaron and I moved to St. Louis when we were still in Rala, I had a co-worker who was a very religious individual. In fact, uh, had plans of becoming a youth pastor in the, in the Baptist church. Uh, and so I got to talking with him uh, about the scriptures and we decided that we would get together to study. And so we, we got together at a restaurant to study and we started talking about things. And I decided that the best approach would be to identify the things that we disagreed on, make a list of them, and start studying those things. That study did not last very long because I did not establish any common ground with this individual. 
um, and he lacked much motivation to continue that study. We, before we delve into areas that uh, we might see are in error with somebody else, we need to start with common ground. We need to build a foundation. And so today, in my approach with most individuals that I talk with, my first study with just about anybody that I meet with involves more listening than it does talking. It involves more asking questions than giving answers. Because if we're going to be helpful to somebody, we first need to understand where they are at and uh, appreciate where they are at and build up from there. And so, you know, we, we don't want to get in the trap of being in our fourth or fifth study with somebody and talking about the plan of salvation and all of a sudden realize that they're not even sure whether or not the Bible is from God. We, we want to make sure that we fully understand where someone is so that we can uh, begin there and teach them uh, from the ground up what it is that they need to hear. You don't come to a construction site with drywall and roof shingles when the foundation hasn't yet been laid. And so let's make sure that as we interact with people that we differ, we first establish some common ground uh, that we can build on together. But secondly, as we approach those that we disagree with, we need to keep or maintain a humble heart and an open mind. This is what we desire from those people. This is what we desire for them to have, to have this open heart, willing to accept that their opinions and convictions may be wrong. And if we expect them to have that approach, we cannot fail to have the same type of heart. We need to make sure that we are willing to challenge our own convictions, that we are willing to search the scriptures, that we're willing to consider that we may be wrong. In Acts chapter 18, if you'd like to turn there, we see the example of a man named Apollos. And here, Apollos was a very educated individual. There in verse 24, we see that he was an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, uh, and that he was mighty in the scriptures. Here is somebody who grew up in an educational hub of the ancient world in Alexandria, Egypt. He was very uh, well-educated and eloquent, powerful in his speech. And yet, he comes in contact with Priscilla and Aquila in verse 26, who were tent makers. And yet, as Priscilla and Aquila begin to teach him some things that he didn't understand, uh, to more accurately uh, teach him the way of truth, we see that Apollos doesn't respond by saying, well, you all must not know who I am. I, I grew up in Alexandria, uh, and, and I have studied in the scripture since my youth. And, uh, you know, you all, you're, you're just tent makers here. No, that's not his response. It doesn't matter what the source was. He had a, a willingness not to uh, put up barriers in, uh, of his own pride, but to have an openness to recognize that even in all his education, he may have something that he needs to learn. We need to make sure that as we interact with others, we, we don't um, have this attitude that we assume that we have it all figured out and that there's nothing that we could have wrong. Um, we need to make sure that we are reflecting an attitude of humility and openness. No, ma no matter how educated in the scriptures or how convicted we may be, we must always be willing to evaluate 
what the truth is, evaluate our own positions. Uh, the truth does not fear investigation. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 verse 11 who were willing to examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Because if those that we are studying with recognize that we're not willing to have the type of heart that we are asking them to have, uh, then we are not going to make much progress at all in our common search for truth. But along with that, uh, this does not mean that we compromise the truth. This does not mean that we just become wishy-washy and, and that we are willing to accept uh, anything and everything that somebody may bring up. Being humble-hearted and open-minded does not mean that we fail to stand firm in our convictions. I may be wrong on something. Uh, I very well may be wrong on many things. Uh, but until you can show me that I am, I will firmly present what I believe to be the truth. A humble heart doesn't mean shrugging my shoulders and saying, well, you know, this is what I think about it, but you never know. Now, we see the scriptures talk very clearly about us having firm convictions, standing firm in our faith. James chapter 3 and verse 17 talks about the wisdom that is from above. And notice how this is described here. We read, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. I want us to notice two words in this passage. First is that word reasonable in the New American Standard Version. Some translate it open to reason, willing to yield, easily entreated. And that means that we are willing to uh, be open to persuasion. The word literally comes from two Greek words, one word that means good and the other word means to persuade. It means we are uh, open to persuasion, easily entreated. But then notice the other word towards the end that New American Standard translates unwavering or unyielding. It means without ambiguity or uncertainty, undoubting. And so here we have two words that are kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum. One is open to reason, willing to accept that we may be wrong, easily uh, entreated or persuaded, and yet the other has a firmness, a conviction that we are unwavering. And these are not inconsistent ideas. Uh, we can both be firmly convicted and yet open to having those convictions challenged. And we need both if we're going to be who God wants us to be. We need to be willing to objectively approach an argument presented to us and yet firmly stand on those things that we believe to be the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Notice Paul's commands to Timothy here. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's often a tendency among those in every new generation to, uh, to cast off the beliefs of their parents and of their forebears. We, we think that if we want to be our own people, then we, we certainly can't believe the things that we were taught growing up. If I'm going to search for myself, I, I need to find something new, something revolutionary. Uh, well, that's not what Paul instructs Timothy here. Uh, 
He says, stand firm in those things that he had learned and been convinced of. If we're going to, to shed off those things that we have been convinced of of the past, we need to have a good reason to do it. We need to be careful that we don't have a tendency to cast off something just because it is traditional or just because it is what has been told us in the past. Uh, we need to make sure that we stand firm in our convictions. In Acts chapter 4, if you'd like to turn over there, here we see the approach of Peter and John as they encounter the rulers among the Jews. If we look there in chapter 4 and verse 5, we see that they are before the rulers and elders and scribes gathered in Jerusalem. Also in verse 6, the high priest and his family. So here we see these mere fishermen are standing before the religious elite of the community. All these people uh, that are reveal, revered for their knowledge of the scriptures. But notice how Peter and John respond to them starting in verse 8. It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. How do Peter and John approach these religious elite? Do they say, well, you know, this is kind of what I think about it, but what do you all think? <laughs> no, Peter is very firm. In what he says here. He is very bold and courageous to state his convictions without any wavering that you are the very ones who crucified the Lord, that the stone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone, that there is salvation and no one else. It doesn't matter that he was just a lowly fisherman and they were trained in the school of the Jewish rabbis. If we continue to read on here, uh, in verse 13, we see it says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. If you look down in verse 19 and 20, it says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot speak, stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Here, we need to have that same type of boldness, that same type of conviction that we are willing to stand up even to those who, according to society's standards, know more than, than we do and stand firm in the things that we have seen and heard and become convinced of. And so when we talk about being open to reason, when we talk about having a humble and open heart, we need to be careful that our minds uh, aren't so open that our brains fall out. <laughs> we need to, to make sure that we are willing to have that firm conviction as well in our interaction with others. But if we are going to be successful in our interaction with others, we need to be able to present evidence for our convictions. 
you want to turn over to Acts chapter 17, we see Paul's regular approach here. Starting in verse 2, it says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. If we expect others to have open hearts to the truth, we then need to present them with some evidence to produce that conviction within them. Here, Paul's regular approach was to reason, to explain, to give evidence. We see he didn't just do that here. If we go down to verse 7, um, uh, and uh, chapter 18 and verse 4, we see, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, and so as we interact with others, our approach needs not to be one of mere assertion that, well, th this is what the Bible says or this is what we believe, but that we can actually seek to provide proof to them for the things that we are teaching. Um, we need to make sure that we don't just expect somebody to take our personal moral outrage as evidence that what we are claiming is true. To give another example uh, of myself, when I was in middle school, I had a friend named Michael Creel. And Michael's father was a pastor at a Presbyterian church. And one day I, I was talking to Michael and came to come to find out he believed in theistic evolution. Um, and I remember my reaction to Michael. I, I said, well, well that, that's not right. Uh, that, that's, that's not what the Bible says. That, that's, you're agreeing with evolutionists. <laughs> and yet I had absolutely no uh, evidence to provide for him, no, no scriptures to go to for him. Uh, I, I just expected him to take my mere assertion, to take my moral outrage at what he was saying as evidence enough that he was wrong. And yet... You know, in, in society today, we thrive on moral outrage. Uh, go, go to Facebook, go, go to social media, um, and see how many posts more than trying to provide some reason and evidence for their convictions of what they believe to be true, thrive on just this moral outrage that will certainly, everybody should see that I'm right on this. <laughs> and yet, that can't be our approach. We need to be willing to take the time and the effort to present legitimate evidence. We can't just say, well, you're wrong and I'm right, and expect them to cave in. We need to be willing to do the hard work of providing evidence for our convictions. Consider John chapter 10, verse 37 and 38. Here Jesus, in speaking to the Jews, says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, um, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus says, if I don't provide you evidence, don't believe me. Jesus didn't expect blind faith. He didn't expect people to just uh, agree with what he was saying just because he said it. He gave them evidence for it. 
God does not expect uh, a faith or a belief in the absence of evidence. He expects a conviction and a faith on the basis of evidence. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he urges us to be prepared to provide that evidence. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This means that we have some work to do. It's easy to claim something is truth, but it is a whole lot harder to effectively defend it. I think this is where preparation comes in for our interactions with others. If you don't know how to defend your beliefs, don't sit back and wait for it miraculously to come to you. Now, God has given us a responsibility to start digging and searching and examining the scriptures, uh, looking into the evidence for ourselves so that we might be able to present that to others as well. We need to be equipping ourselves for this work. Um, if we are going to be effective in interacting uh, with others. But notice at the end of that passage, he also talks about the way in which we should do it. He says, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so, in addition to providing that evidence, we need to be careful about the way in which we provide it, the way in which we speak. We need to express love through gentleness. I think there is certainly some truth in the statement that people don't know how much, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Most times when we interact with uh, a stranger, when we come to, up to somebody out of the blue and start talking to them about the gospel, uh, I, I imagine there are primarily two things on their mind. Number one, why is this person going out of their way to talk to me? What, what's in it for them? Um, what, what's their agenda? And number two, why should I listen? What am I going to get out of it? Um, and so as we approach somebody with the gospel, especially if we're seeking to go out and to talk to strangers, to talk to other people, reach out to our community with the gospel, we need to make it very clear what our motive is and very clear what we are seeking to provide for them. It should be our goal to make it as clear as possible that we are speaking to them because we genuinely care about the well-being of their eternal soul. And we send that message through gentleness. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as Paul talks about his interaction with the Thessalonians. We read about him reasoning in the, script, uh, in the synagogues of Thessalonica uh, earlier. Well, now we see him commenting about his approach towards them. Starting in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 2, it says, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become uh, dear to us. And if we continue on in verse 10 and 11, it says, You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved toward you, uh, toward you believers, just as, uh, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. 
Here are the two illustrations that he uses here are of a mother taking care of her nursing child and of a father tenderly exhorting and encouraging his child. Is that how others would describe our approach to this? Could that describe me and my words? I'm afraid sometimes, instead of being described as a nursing mother, I might be described as a predator seeking its prey. <laughs> uh, instead of being described as a caring father, I might be described as a religious crusader, ranting and raving. But brethren, we need, in the way that we approach others, to make it very clear, unquestionable, what our motives are that we love them and that we care about them. There are certainly times to uh, restrain our emotions, to be reserved about our emotions. But when it comes to our compassion and our care and our love for other people, we need to wear that on our sleeves. It needs to be the first thing that people see about us when we seek to interact with them about the gospel. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5 we're told, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. What is it pe that people know about us? When we interact with others, what was the first thing that they know about us? Is that, well, well they think they're right. They, they, they think they have it all figured out. Or is it, they really genuinely care about me? That is the impression that we need to seek to leave in the way that we interact with others. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 that we read earlier says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Certainly we must not change the message of God's word in any way. Uh, but the way in which we communicate that message needs to be as palatable and as easy to swallow as possible. As if seasoned with salt, we, in our gracious presentation of the gospel, make it very easy to accept. We season our words with grace and compassion and love and humility and sincerity. If anyone rejects the gospel, let it be because of the message itself and not because of the way that I presented it. I want to use myself as an example once again. Uh, shortly before Anna and I moved to St. Louis, uh, we had the opportunity to study with uh, a young couple, Simon and Mary Ploss in St. James, Missouri, and they had been attending services for some weeks or, or months uh, and we set up a time to, to meet with them in their home and study the Bible together with them. And as we discussed matters of salvation, instead of leaving them with a very clear impression that we genuinely loved and cared about them, I, I'm afraid that we left them with the impression that uh, we uh, were very dogmatic about uh, matters of salvation. Um, because of our forcefulness in stating some of those things, they never returned. And that haunts me today. And, and the only reason that I can come to terms with that 
is because I know that God makes up for our errors and our mistakes. And that God can overcome our insufficiencies to reach out to other people with the gospel. And so I find comfort in knowing that even though it is vitally important that we work on the way that we interact with other people with the gospel, that we can know that nothing will get in the way of the good and honest heart in God's word, not even me. But as much as depends on us, we need to be working on that. And it's not that there is never a time for forcefulness. It's not that there is never a time to state our convictions in no uncertain terms. But we need to make sure that before we use force, we use love and gentleness. That, that is the first impression that we leave. And that brings us to our last point, that we need to save forcefulness for the stiff-necked. While the apostles spoke truth and love and gentleness, there were clearly some times that they spoke in very bold and forceful ways. Consider Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53. Here, Stephen, in preaching to the Jewish leaders here, uh, could not be described as interacting with them as a mother would her nursing child. <laughs> Notice what he says, starting in verse 51. He says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Why is it that we can read passages about Paul approaching them as a, a nursing mother and as a caring father, and then we can look at Stephen, who here boldly and firmly convicts these uh, individuals of their sin and their stiff-necked hearts. I think what we see here is that these individuals had proved themselves to be stiff-necked, had proved themselves to have unreceptive hearts, and they did not at this point need to gently be taught the truth. At this point, their pride needed to be broken. And we often see examples of this uh, nature within the Scriptures. Turn over to Acts chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Starting verse 8, it says, But Elamus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, Paul and Barnabas here, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Why is it that Paul, who in many cases was very gentle and loving in his presentation of the truth, could state this so firmly and forcefully? It's because Elamus was threatening the reception of somebody else to the gospel. Elamus was standing in the way 
of the gospel being presented to Sergius Paulus and to the rest of the proconsul, uh, or, or the rest of the group there. And so when people are stiff-necked, when they are turning other people away from the faith, we need to have a passion that is willing to be courageous and willing to be bold and willing to stand up and state things as they are so that others might be saved. You know, you never see Jesus approaching tax collectors and sinners in this way. You don't see Jesus going up to the woman at the well and starting by talking about how horrible her uh, you know, relationship with this man who is not her husband was. Now we see uh, Jesus interacting with tax collectors and sinners in a very gentle and loving way. And yet, look in Matthew chapter 23. How does Jesus react to the scribes and the Pharisees? Brood of vipers, hypocrites. Why? Ultimately, this comes back to our first point of starting where people are at. Uh, when we recognize that somebody has a hard heart, is lifted up in pride, overtaken with hypocrisy, is unwilling to recognize their need to change, unwilling to recognize their spiritual poverty, there are times that people need to be shaken out of that mindset, that pride needs to be broken. And it is not out of place for us at those times to state it with boldness and with courage. Consider Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, starting with verse 10 here. It says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Here he says these individuals need to be silenced. Why? Because they are causing souls to be lost. And whatever we need to do to preserve those souls and to uh, stop their influence uh, upon them, we need to be willing to step up and do it. And so when we recognize that others' souls are at stake, that others are being negatively influenced by what these individuals are teaching, we need to be willing to use forcefulness at times and passion and protecting the flock and protecting others' souls. And not only that, as we continue in this passage, um, we see he goes on to talk about uh, their own condition. Uh, he says, For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Later on, down at the end of this passage, it says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Here, individuals who profess to know God, but are denying Him. Those who, like the scribes and Pharisees, claimed to be uh, religious leaders even, and yet were guiding others away from the faith. Um, in cases like that, we need to rebuke severely. And it's not that it is unloving to do that. It is loving to the well-being 
of everyone's souls that we stop that type of negative influence. Forcefulness and harsh rebuke should not be our first reaction to anyone in sin, but only to those who have proven to be stiff-necked, blind to their faults, turning others away from the Lord. And when presenting the gospel in, in gentleness, uh, does not phase somebody who is actively pursuing sin or actively teaching something that is destroying the faith of others. We need not to be afraid to stand up and to speak as we see others speaking within the scripture. I hope that these considerations have been helpful to you as you think about your interaction with the lost world around you. We need to start where people are at. We need to start with common ground, keep a humble and open heart, stand firm in the truth. We need to present evidence for our convictions, express love through gentleness, and save forcefulness for the stiff-necked. Maybe you recognize today uh, that you are lost, that you're not in a right relationship with the Lord. Jesus would come to you as that nursing mother, would come seeking to win you to himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. That is Jesus' invitation to you. And yet, if you resist that yoke, if you show yourself to be stiff-necked, if you refuse to recognize your need for the salvation that Jesus offered you through his shed blood upon the cross, there will come a time where Jesus' gentleness will be replaced by forcefulness, when he will judge those who have rejected his invitation. Are you willing to turn to him today? Are you willing to surrender your life fully to him? If you recognize there's some part of your life that you have not been subjecting to the Lord, we want you to make that right with the Lord now. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, to bury the old man of sin in baptism, or to publicly confess some sin. We ask that you'll let us know at this time.